Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 42. Today we'll be reading Book 10, chapters 35 through 37 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining on any podcast app, on YouTube, and at godsplaining.org. All right, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So these three chapters, as you will hear, are a little bit abstract uh, because St. Augustine is trying to get at the deepest roots of sin. So pride, especially, but like human respect. So considering the outside rather than the inside or considering things that are accidental trappings rather than essential heart of the matter type things. Uh, He's also trying to like address the difference between living for the glory of God and the salvation of souls and then living for things which are kind of like that, close to that, but end up being not that. So yeah, it's fine shades. And here, his main kind of controlling paradigm or the main scriptural verse which governs the discourse is 1 John 2 again, where he talks about this threefold concupiscence, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And here, we're going to be talking about the lust of the eyes. So get very excited. Let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 35. However, there is a much more dangerous form of temptation to be added to this. For besides the concupiscence of the flesh, consisting in the delight of all the senses and pleasures, where those enslaved to them go far from you, waste away, and perish, the soul also has, through the same bodily senses, a kind of vain and curious desire, veiled under the names of knowledge and learning, taking delight not in the flesh but rather in having experiences through the flesh. This is found in the desire for knowledge. And since sight is the chief sense used for attaining knowledge in the divine language, it is called, quote, the lust of the eyes. For sight belongs properly to the eyes. However, we use this word for other senses too when we employ them in seeking knowledge. For we do not say, hear how it flashes, smell how it glows, or taste how it shines, or feel how it gleams. For all these sorts of things are said to be seen. Yet we not only say, see how it shines, which only the eyes can perceive, but we also say, see how it sounds, see how it smells, see how it tastes, see how hard it is. Thus, as we said, the general experience of the senses is called, quote, the lust of the eyes, because the other senses take to themselves by way of likeness the office of seeing whenever they seek any sort of knowledge. But this helps us to discern more clearly how it is that pleasure and curiosity are the object of our senses. For pleasure seeks beautiful, melodious, fragrant, tasty, and soft objects, whereas curiosity seeks even the opposite sorts of sensations, merely from a desire to try them out. 
not out of a desire to suffer annoyance, but rather out of a lust for trying things out and having such experiences. For what pleasure is there in shuddering upon seeing a mangled carcass? And yet, if it is lying nearby, the curious will flock to it so that they might be saddened and become pale with horror. Even in sleep they are afraid to see it. But is it as though when they were awake anyone forced them to see it, or some tale concerning its beauty drew them to it? Examples could be drawn from all the other senses, though it would take a long time to go through them all. This curiosity is the source of all those strange sights that we find in the theater. Hence, men push onward in order to seek out the hidden powers of nature, which is outside of what we are here going to talk about, knowledge of which is of no profit to anyone, and which men solely wish to know out of a desire to know. This is also what motivates inquiry into perverted knowledge concerning the magical arts. And likewise, in religion itself, man puts God to the test when he demands that he perform signs and wonders, solely in order to subject him to such a trial. In this vast wilderness, full of snares and dangers, behold that I have cut off and thrust from my heart as many such things as you have enabled me to do, O God of my salvation. And yet, so many of these things buzz about us on all sides each day of our lives. Thus, when do I dare to say that nothing of this sort draws my attention or draws my idle interest? Yes, the theaters no longer carry me away, nor do I know the courses of the stars, nor did my soul ever consult the ghosts of the departed. I detest all sacrilegious mysteries. But by what artifices and suggestions does the enemy try to lead me to desire that you give some sign, O Lord my God, to whom I owe humble and single-hearted service? But I beseech you by our King and by our pure and holy homeland Jerusalem, that even as consent to such temptations is far from me, may it even be further driven away from me. But when I pray to you for the salvation of anyone, my end and intention is far different. You enable me, and will continue to enable me, to follow you willingly, doing what you will. Nonetheless, who can count how many trifling and contemptible things tempt our curiosity, or how often we give in to them? How often do we begin as though we were tolerating people who are telling empty tales, lest we offend the weak, only thereafter to find ourselves gradually taking interest in them? I no longer go to the circus to see a hound chasing a rabbit. However, while passing by a field, if I happen to see the same kind of thing happening there, I will allow it to distract me in the midst of some weighty thought, drawing me toward that chase, not so as to physically turn my horse aside, but still inclining my mind toward it. And unless you enable me to see my weakness, and thus quickly admonish me either to rise in contemplation from this sight to you, or to spurn it altogether and pass it by, I will stand there and stare dully at the sight. Or what about when I often sit watching a lizard catching flies or a spider rush toward them when they are captured in her nets? Is this different merely because they are small creatures? I go on from them in order to praise you, the wonderful creator and orderer of all things. However, this does not at first draw my attention. It is one thing to rise quickly and another not to fall. My life is full of such things and my only hope is in your great and wonderful mercy. For when our heart becomes the receptacle of such things and is weighed down with hosts of such abundant vanities, then our prayers also are often interrupted and distracted by them. And while in your presence we direct the voice of our heart to your ears, this great concern of ours is cut short by the rushing in of who knows what sort of idle thoughts. Chapter 36 Shall we then judge this to be only a minor concern, or should anything other than your complete mercy bring us back to hope, since you have begun to change us? And you know how far you have already changed me, you who first healed me of the lust to acquit myself, that in this way you might forgive all the rest of my iniquities, heal all my infirmities, and redeem my life from corruption, crowning me with mercy and pity, and satisfying my desire with good things. 
Yes, O you who did curb my pride with your fear and who tamed my neck so that it might take up your yoke, and now I bear it, and it is light to me, for such have you promised, and thus have you made it. How true all this was, even when I did not know it and feared to take it on. But, O Lord, you alone who are Lord without pride, for you are the only true Lord who has no Lord, has this third kind of temptation ceased for me, or can it ever cease our whole life long? That is, to wish to be feared and loved by men for no other reason than to have joy in this, which in fact is no joy. What a miserable life this is, and what a foul boastfulness. Thus, especially it happens that men neither love nor fear you purely. Therefore, you resist the proud and give grace to the humble. Yes, you thunder upon the ambitions of the world and make the foundations of the mountains tremble. Because now certain offices in human society make it necessary that we be loved and feared by men, the adversary of our true blessedness presses down upon us, everywhere laying his snares in the word, Well done, well done. And we, greedily taking in these words, find ourselves ensnared without even knowing it, severing our joy from your truth and setting it in the deceptions of men. Thus we come to be pleased at being loved and feared, not for your sake, but instead of you. Thus our enemy makes them like himself and takes them for his own, not by the bonds of charity, but in the chains of punishment. He who set his throne in the north, so that in dark and cold they might serve him, perversely and crookedly imitating you. But behold, O Lord, we are your little flock, possess us as your own. Stretch forth your wings over us and let us fly in their shadow. Be our glory and let us be loved for your sake and your word be feared in us. Whoever wishes to be praised by men when he is blameworthy in your sight will not be defended by men when you come to judge him, nor delivered when you condemn. But when the sinner is not praised in the desires of his soul, nor the ungodly man blessed, but rather a man is praised for some gift that you have given him, and he rejoices more at the praise for himself than at the fact that he has the gift for which he is praised, he also receives praise while you reproach him. And thus, better is he who praises than he who is praised. For the first took pleasure in God's gift in man, whereas the second was better pleased by man's gift rather than God's. Chapter 37 Daily, O Lord, we are assailed by these temptations. Unceasingly we are assailed. Our daily furnace is the tongue of men. And in this way too you command continence of us. Give what you command and command what you will. You know how my heart groans concerning these matters and how my eyes stream at the thought of them. For I cannot discern how far I have been cleansed from this plague, and how greatly do I fear my secret sins, which stand before your eyes, though my eyes do not see them. For in other kinds of temptation I have some ability to examine myself, but in this matter scarcely any. When I hold back my mind from the pleasures of the flesh and idle curiosity, I can at least see what I have managed to do when I do without them, whether I actively give them up or do not have them present to me. For then I can ask myself how much more or less annoying it is for me not to have them. And as for the riches that are desired in the service of one, two, or all three of the forms of concupiscence, if the soul cannot discern whether or not it scorns them when it has them, it can at least cast them aside so as to avoid the temptation. But in order to exist without praise and thereby try our powers, must we not live a terrible life, indeed utterly abandoned and atrociously, so that all would detest us? What greater madness can be spoken or thought of? But if praise normally accompanies the good life and good works, and indeed it should, we should no less forego its company than we should forego the good life itself. Yet I do not know whether I can do without anything for good or ill unless it is absent. What then do I confess to you in the sort of temptation, O Lord? What, except that I am delighted with praise, though with truth itself more than praise? For if someone were to ask if I would like to be praised by all men, even though I was raving in error about all things, or rather, to be scorned by all though most rooted in the truth, I see which I should choose. 
but I should not wish that another man's approval would increase my joy for myself in any way. Yet I acknowledge the fact that it does increase it, and not only that, but disapproval diminishes it. And when I am troubled at this, my wretchedness, an excuse comes to mind, though you know what it is worth, O Lord, for it leaves me uncertain. Indeed, since you have commanded of us not only continence, telling us what we must refrain from loving, but also righteousness, telling us what we should bestow our love upon, and since you have willed that we are not to love only you, but our neighbor as well, often when I am pleased with intelligent praise, I seem to myself to be pleased with what my neighbor has done or seems able to do, or to be grieved at the evil that is in him when he critiques either what he does not understand or what is good. Sometimes I am grieved at my own praise, either when I am praised for things I dislike in myself, or even when lesser and minor goods are esteemed more than they should be. But how do I know whether or not I feel like this because I do not want the person who praises me to have a different opinion about me than my own, thus not being influenced by concern for him, but rather because I am more pleased when the good things that please me about myself are also pleasing for someone else? For somehow I am not praised when my judgment concerning myself is not praised, either because things that displease me are praised or because those which are less pleasing to me are praised more greatly than I esteem them. Therefore, I am doubtful concerning myself in this matter. Behold, in you, O truth, I see that I should not be moved for my own sake when I am praised, but rather for the good of my neighbor. But whether this is true of me, I do not know. For here I know less about myself than you do. I beseech you now, O my God, reveal to me myself as well, so that I might confess to my brethren those places where I discover that I am wounded. Let me examine myself again more diligently. If, in my praise, I am moved by the good of my neighbor, why am I less affected when someone else is unjustly disparaged than if this is said of me? Why am I more stung by reproaches when they are hurled at me than when, with equal injustice, they are spoken about someone else standing before me? Am I also ignorant about this too? Or, in the end, do I not deceive myself and fail to act in the truth, in my heart and tongue, before your sight? Put this madness far away from me, O Lord, lest my own mouth anoint my head with the oil of sinners. Okay, so, as we have already heard to this point, St. Augustine has a high standard for what it means to be recollected or what it means to be consecrated in the truth. So he's not the type that's going to say to you, you know what, you've been baptized, you've been confirmed, you're not killing anybody, you're doing great. No, he, he wants you to be wholly the Lord's and he wants the Lord in his generosity who kind of stands poised to give you great graces to show himself especially generous in your case. Like he wants you to profit from all the gifts that God has in store. And so he's going to get pretty fine-grained in this section. We start with a little meditation again on curiosity. So we've heard this come up when he talks about Olypius, and on the one hand, he's attracted to circuses. On the other hand, he's attracted to gladiatorial combats, you know, so he, he's looking at things and he's getting overly absorbed in things. And so St. Augustine has been thinking about curiosity in light of these facts. And here he talks about his own tendency to look at <laughs> like small animals attacking insects, right? Or, you know, small woodland creatures chasing other things. You know, it's like, okay, we're really serious here. But you can understand his motivation to guard against things like, you know, trivia or trivialism or know-it-allism or rubbernecking or this kind of tendency of some to unlock the secrets of nature or whatever it is. You know, so we have a lot of different ways in our lives where we're attracted to knowing the truth, but in an inordinate way. So our desire to know the truth kind of gets out of control. Um, and he's, he's encouraging us to be on the lookout. So I don't know when you read these passages, uh, Father Jacob Bertrand, if it sparked particular thoughts or you thought about particular applications. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, as you were talking, I was thinking of one particular application or event, especially 
remembering that St. Augustine likes to look at little woodland creatures. I live kind of in a woodland area. I was sitting on our deck at our priory or house here up here and a little chipmunk came up and was like a few feet from me and i spent far too long just like having a stare down with the chipmunk and eventually i won because he left and i didn't but yeah i was just <laughs> it was it was an order i won't even it was probably like four or five minutes just like neither of us moving it was too long um so i understand i understand the draw i understand the attraction to little woodland creatures um I thought about feeding him to keep him and coming back, but we had a possum problem, so I wasn't going to risk, you know, bringing back somebody else. But in a more serious note, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the know-it-all kind of thing, just like knowing, it, it harkens back to Augustine's criticism of of those who seek knowledge just to have knowledge about something, you know. Um, we talked about that when we were talking about Augustine's studies and his his teaching. And St. Augustine realizes, and we should too, that that knowing things is, you know, ought to point us to knowing God ultimately and knowing God in his creation and in himself. And if it's just knowledge for the sake of knowledge or, you know, being able to recite facts, whether it's about something important or something trivial, it's kind of like, what's the point? Because we're made, our, our minds are made to know something greater and to be drawn into something greater. So I don't think St. Augustine is saying like, we can't have hobbies or care about things that, you know, other things or kind of like nerd out about this or that, you know, thing that we're interested in. But it's it's a question of where is our mind, where is our heart placed ultimately? Um, that's That's kind of how I read it because we don't want to be kind of puritanical about it and say, we can never read a novel. We only can read the scriptures. You know, well, no, because a novel might give us insight into like something in a different way through a different angle of the prism of truth and that sort of thing. So, yeah. So, so when I read this, I think that a helpful series of questions to pose to oneself, not necessarily with every action um, you contemplate, but throughout the course of your life is to what end and how does it fit? Because I think that sometimes we go down rabbit holes of, you know, Googling X, Y, or Z things because, and it's like, who won the NBA finals in 2014? Was it the Spurs? Was Kawhi Leonard on that? You know, it's like, in a certain sense, who cares? Nothing about my, well, my inquiry into this particular consideration is going to avail me much. And truth be told, I probably care too much about the NBA at this point and restructuring of contracts and retaining free agents and yada, yada, and nuts and such. So it's like, you know, to what end? And then how does it fit? Because we as human beings are limited. Uh, so we can know potentially infinite different facts or different things. But as we kind of go about acquiring that knowledge or working through that knowledge or assimilating that knowledge in, into a wisdom, we're always going to come up against limitations, like limitations of time, limitations of energy, limitations of attention. And so we can't treat our minds as if they were a potentially infinite playground because we're feeding our minds through our bodies and our bodies are always coming up against these these obstacles, these hindrances or just these kind of facts of life. And so I think too, you know, St. Augustine has this in mind when he says, yeah, I was just watching these things eat these insects in a way that like people slow down in traffic to see what happened with that accident, because we just, we just can't keep ourselves from looking at what is potentially grisly or potentially yucky or whatever else. So I think that um, it's just good for us to reflect on those themes insofar as they can help us to be, yeah, just more one mind and one heart on the way to God, rather than dispersed and distracted and just thrown in every which way. Okay, so then he turns now to his 
or to our disposition uh, vis-a-vis other men, which is to say like, all right, what about our relationships? Um, how can we be holy in our relationships? And he's thinking about it specifically, whether whether to be loved or feared by others. As Michael Scott once said, I want others to fear how much they love me. Um, so St. Augustine doesn't say that. But we, we can think about our own religious life. We follow the rule of St. Augustine. And St. Augustine will say some things that to a modern audience sound a little bit strange. Like he says, for instance, if the novice master might be, let's say, a little too severe in his correction of a novice, he ought not to apologize because it could potentially undermine his authority. And we think, no, wouldn't that reaffirm his authority because it shows him to be humble? It shows him to be, you know, responsive, as it were, to the real life situation. But St. Augustine here has has just a different understanding. And I think that what, what he's ultimately kind of pushing towards is that we ought to be loved or we ought to be feared for the right things in accord with God's call in our lives. All right. And some of us are set over others or some of us are in relationships which need to maintain very strict, close boundaries. Some of us are are in other situations. So I don't know what these kind of impressionistic descriptions that he gives uh, kind of spark in your thoughts or if you have thoughts thereupon. I think that we are the sort of present modern, however you want to make a cliche criticism of the times we find ourselves, where we are afraid of things being difficult or challenging at times. So I think that seeking to be loved, I think we can all get our minds around that. Seeking to be feared, as you already mentioned, where I think we'd be more apt to recoil or kind of be like, what is he talking about kind of thing at this point. But I think that as you've described, there's a goodness to it in the sense that we don't want to instill fear in people such as it's a crippling thing, but it's sort of the trickle-down reality of of fear of the Lord that there ought to be in us and kindle the desire to live rightly, to live a good life. And, And there should be a sort of fear of failing in that. And sometimes that that's taught to us or given to us by those who have authority over us. And, you know, we could fear disappointing them or upsetting them or of the punishment that might be inflicted. And that's not always a bad thing. Perhaps it's a easier way to describe it in a, in a sort of form of like tough love at times, you know, that, that guides us and, and directs us to the good. And I don't think it's as sort of severe as like contemporary imaginations might let us imagine when Augustine says it's, you know, it's good to be feared for the right things. It's, yeah, we don't want to make a caricature out of it to in order to dismiss it, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. And you see him kind of bring it home or bring it to its term in the meditations which follow because ultimately at the end of the day, he's reckoning with pride. All right. So there's the sense that he wants to be where the Lord wants him to be. He wants to be in right relation to God and to those with whom he lives and beyond, right? But that means cultivating virtues, uh, specifically cultivating a certain self-knowledge and a a certain self-abandonment, as it were, so that way he can live well in accord with, yeah, the dictate of God and of reality. Um, And so he'll say, I've got to reckon with pride because I notice that not only do I want people to praise me, but I want people to praise me for the things that I think are praiseworthy. If they praise me for something else, I'm like, oh, did you notice this, this other thing that I did? Oh, you're, you're praising that book. I didn't even think that was my best book. Did you read this book that I wrote? Because that was, you know, that was surely something. It's like, oh, my homily was, you thought my, what about my homily? Oh, the second, I thought that was the weakest paragraph. What about the, you know, so he's reckoning with his own pride and how very subtle it is and how very insidious it can be kind of getting even into our good works. Uh, which we'll talk about as we progress through this uh, or the the remaining chapters. But in order for us to be genuinely humble, we ought to be content with what the Lord gives, with what the Lord takes away. We ought to desire to be praised for the things that he deems praiseworthy, to be praised for the right things. I mean, even more simply, just to desire the right things. And if praise follows it, so be it, God be praised. But you see here 
Augustine struggling, saying like, Lord, reveal me to myself. Humility is super difficult. You're going to have to pour it out because otherwise I'm not going to make it through. So I, I found this to be yeah, super encouraging, very genuine, authentic in his grappling. Yeah. But what are your, what are your thoughts on this kind of basic struggle of human existence? Well, I think it's all what you just said. It kind of sums it all up that sometimes we think humility has this, it does, well, I don't know if it brings about peace and tranquility. Certainly our Lord brings about peace and tranquility in our lives. But for me, speaking of my own personal experience, humility is not my shining virtue. I will say, you know, I'll admit that you can, you know, on the official record and, and humility is like a lot of the virtues, but humility, there's, there's a struggle there and that there's a challenge to live it and to be conformed by God's grace in it. And St. Augustine here is, is just reminding us of that fact that even though humility is the virtue par excellence in many ways, because it's an imitation of Christ who humbled himself, that doesn't mean that it's just a sort of, ah, I'm going to be humble and everything's going to be all right. You know, it's a challenge. It's difficult. And it's something that we have to pray for and work on and cooperate with regularly. It, it pride is that thing, as you know, as Father Gregory said, it creeps into and can disfigure even what is good and our, what we're doing that's good. So there has to be a, not a sort of scrupulosity, but a hypervigilance and sort of a, a regular struggle with it. That doesn't mean we can't grow in humility, and it doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't offer grace for us to be humble, but I think it's okay to say that, like, it's not easy, you know, and it's, it's not a one-time fix either. So for me, St. Augustine here is yeah, there's there's a sort of consolation in the camaraderie and the struggle for humility and the striving for humility. Yeah, and that you don't have to craft or engineer your own fine-tooth comb. You can use his because he's already done the work and he helps us to acknowledge those parts of our lives that stand in need of ongoing conversion. Boom. Okay, that's what we have for you for this episode. We look forward to chatting with you at the next uh, or during the next or in the next or whatever the appropriate preposition is. Prepositions are hard for me. Okay, no of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>